I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this episode number 53, our regular November episode. In the second portion of our show, we have an audio essay from Adam Turrell titled Making Politics and Art at the End of the World. We start with the news. Locally right here in Minneapolis, Ward 12, Arene Chowdhury won the Ward City Council seat, taking over from Andrew Johnson who left the position. Chowdhury had the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, and Democratic Farmer Labor, DFL endorsement, and was a member of DSA. She was primarily supported by labor organizers, other politicians, teachers, alternative energy groups, and progressive advocacy orgs, while her main opponent, Luther Ranheim, was primarily supported by developers, banks, lawyers, and lobbyists. That, according to Charles Underwood, on October 25th for Longfellow Nokomis Messenger, a local small business owner, Nancy Ford, was also running in this ward. 2023 elections, how we did, how Minnesota did, how the U.S. did is the title of a post from Twin Cities DSA on November 11th. It reads in the section marked Twin Cities DSA endorses, quote, Twin Cities DSA endorsed seven candidates this year. Five were running for city council seats in Minneapolis and two for city council seats in St. Paul. We had an 80% win rate in Minneapolis and 100% in St. Paul. The one loss, heartbreakingly close, was also the only one running against an incumbent. This was Soren Stevenson, who gained the DFL endorsement over incumbent and council president Andrea Jenkins for Ward 8 in Minneapolis after having already been endorsed by Twin Cities DSA. This was considered a shocking upset by the city powers, the centrist DFLers, and probably Miss Jenkins herself. Let's just say after that, the empire struck back, end quote. Nationally, the empire continues to strike back against cop city protesters, both physically and legally. That is covered by The Guardian November 10th in an article titled Inside the Attempt to Charge Georgia's Cop City Activists with Racketeering. And on itsgoingdown.org, November 14th, in an article titled Police Attack Protesters as Hundreds March Against Cops in Atlanta Halt Construction. Those links are in the show notes. In the Middle East, the Israeli Defense Force continues to carry out a genocide on the Palestinian people in Gaza. And Israeli officials continue to say the quiet part out loud, but seem to speak with impunity. World Socialist website has an article November 14th titled Ethnic Cleansing in Gaza. Israel's agriculture minister declares, quote, we're rolling out Nakba 2023, end quote. That same day, Al Jazeera has an article titled Indonesians Boycott McDonald's Starbucks Over Support for Israel. As global acts of solidarity, protest, union actions, and boycotts continue, here in Minneapolis, the strong showing of support for a free Palestine and ceasefire now continues. Fight Back News has multiple articles covering the recent Palestine solidarity events here in the Twin Cities. This includes an article, Minneapolis 5,000 plus March for Palestine against Biden by Whitney Wildman, November 2nd. Minnesota St. Catherine University protest stands with Palestine November 4th. Minneapolis thousands March for Palestine in support of historic March in D.C. November 5th. Note, I attended that event which had a good turnout and massive amounts of community support in the Cedar Riverside neighborhood. Another article from Fight Back News, Minnesota marches on Washington, D.C. for a free Palestine by Aaron Gable, November 7th. 
University of Minnesota students hold demonstration to honor Palestinians martyred since October 7th by Myra Altobel Resendez, November 9th, and 10,000 march on Minnesota Capitol for Gaza on November 12th. All those links in the show notes. I also attended an event uh, November 12th called Twin Cities Families for Ceasefire at Triangle Park in Minneapolis. It was an event that was focused on children and families. Let's listen to a number of clips from that event. Here is a fifth grader at Twin Cities Families for Ceasefire explaining what a protest or rally is. Hello, everybody. What I think, I know what a protest is, but I don't know what a rally is. Even, and I'm in fifth grade, so I probably know a lot more than you, little one. <laughs> so what a protest is, is you know, you know how a lot of people do like a lot of bad things, but like it's like for those people who are doing even more badder things and still having men went to jail. Think about it. I, I have stopped at eating McDonald's, even though they were so good. <laughs> they taste good, but soggy. Now, I hate them because of their fundraising for bombs. <laughs> Nobody likes bombs now. So yes, a is like something like a lot of people like march down the street and saying for it to stop. Here's another clip from that event with Elian Farhat from Take Action Minnesota talking about why it is important to include children in our movement. And the truth is, is that our voices matter. And it's really important that our littlest voices, kids, from fifth grade and younger and older are here saying what we how, what the change we want to see happen in the world and demanding a safe place for every single kid here in Minneapolis and around the world. And you all are powerful and amazing and beautiful and thank you for being here. The event was a great introductory protest and brought lots of families and children out to Triangle Park. Becca Tilson from Jewish Voice for Peace and Child Newer came to the event. In this clip, Tilson talks about being arrested in D.C. with other members of Jewish Voice for Peace. I got the honor of asking to getting up to be here because I got the honor of going to D.C. and being arrested in the first week for ceasefire with 400 Jews in the rotunda of one of the congressional buildings. And it was really incredible and also kind of boring like it was all the things and um we were singing we were singing um in hope and prayer we, we bring ourselves here for hours and hours and we got arrested and if you don't know what arrested is it's like you know you like our our friend the, our comrade the fifth grader said like people do bad things and sometimes the police take them away but sometimes the police take them away because they do the right thing if you want to pretend you were arrested for for a march, you can put your hands behind your back like this. And that's what I was like for hours. And that's what I was like for hours like this. With my hands behind my back. And um, I was feeling pretty, um, pretty like, what was I doing here? Like, I came all the way here, my baby's in Minnesota. I don't think that this mattered that I was here. And I was standing in line 
four hours and we were singing and we were singing from Jews to Palestinians um, from the book of Ruth um, your people are my people where you go I will you go and um, then we got on the bus and somebody came from Jewish Voice for Peace the organization that brought us together and she said while we were standing out there for so long I heard what our impact was and she told us that people it's all the news stations covered our protest and she told us that people all over the world saw what we did. And I just cried, and I cried, and I cried, and I cried, because um, I did not know that was happening. So that's the other thing I want to say to the young ones here, is like, it's sometimes, and to all of us, you sometimes you don't know, you don't know if what you're doing matters until you do it. In this clip, Alia Hanai, American Muslims for Peace, after asking the children, about Gaza and things they would not be able to do if they did not have electricity, discusses the situation in Gaza. Did you know that before this fighting started, um, there was no, uh, people of Gaza only got four hours of electricity every day. And since the fighting started a month ago, they had zero electricity since then. So they are not able to um, have internet, they can't charge their phones to uh, contact their uh, families or relatives. If it's cold, they can't turn on the heater. If it's hot, they can't turn the air conditioner. Uh, the refrigerator is not working. So there is no electricity for an entire month. So we are living um, uh, not a fun uh, life. And also, did you guys know that in, uh, the, the water that we use to uh, uh, clean the dishes, to cook, and even to shower, in order for us to clean that water, we need electricity. So. The water in Gaza is not clean because people don't have access to electricity and because they need, they are forced to uh, use uh, dirty water, they get sick as a result of that. Um, so that's one of the things that we, uh, they are going uh, through. Um, also, since the fighting started, many children and their families, they had to leave their homes. So they are no longer able to uh, sleep on their comfy beds, they are no longer able to stay at home. They uh, need to uh, leave their home and find a safer place. So that's one of the things that I forced to do. Um, and so I thank you, all of you, for being here, for uh, listening to their, to their stories and for amplifying their voices. Um, and so today, today we learned about the pro what, what the meaning of a protest is, which is us gathering here, talking about what's happening there, demanding a ceasefire, demanding the bombing to stop, and demanding... Um, uh, the fighting to stop and for, for people to have access to food, water, electricity, and to be safe in their homes and to live in peace with each other. Uh, so this is one type of protest, which is us coming together, talking about them, and amplifying our voices. If only one person was talking about the ceasefire, if only one person was uh, uh, talking about uh, demanding for this to stop, no one would listen to them. But we're all here together to demand order. And then, so our voices are much stronger when we are un when we are united. Woo! And, and as our uh, friend mentioned earlier, another type of protest is called a boycott. So a boycott is when you decide uh, not to uh, support any company that benefits from all of this injustice. And in this last clip, Jayanti remembers the beloved late activist Mel Reeves. Peace and blessings, everyone. Peace and blessings. My name is Jayanti. 
Um, I do music at Walker West Music Academy throughout Minnesota. And it's my honor to be here with you today in session to lead you in a couple of songs. And it's important for us to remember that we are somebody. How many remember Mel Reeves? And how Mel Reeves, Brother Mel Reeves would say, I, I, I am, I am somebody, somebody, I, I, I am, I am somebody, somebody, I, I, I am, I am somebody, somebody. That's right. And as somebody, close your eyes real quick and think about other people who want the ceasefire too. Think about other people you know that are very peaceful. Who is a good example of peace to you? Who are the people who have been your teachers? Who are the people who have been your guides of how to be a good person? Think about them. And with you thinking about them, it's almost as if they're here with us too. So we have so many more people here than we can even see. And now we go to our musical break. This is also Jayanti from Walker West Music Academy singing two songs with the crowd this past weekend. I am not going alone. I carry my people in my bones. I carry my people in my bones. I am not, I am not going alone. If you listen, you can hear them in my soul. And if you listen, you can hear them in my soul. Soon and very soon, we are going to change. 
are going to change the world. Justice is ours today. Justice is ours today. We are going to change the world. Justice is ours today. We are going to change the world. go to our audio essay making politics and art at the end of the world by adam turrell here it is the more total society becomes the greater the reification of the mind and the more paradoxical its effort to escape reification on its own even the most extreme consciousness of doom threatens to degenerate into idle chatter cultural criticism finds itself faced with the final stage of the dialectic of culture and barbarism to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric, and this corrodes even the knowledge of why it has become impossible to write poetry today. Absolute reification, which presupposed intellectual progress as one of its elements, is now preparing to absorb the mind entirely. Critical intelligence cannot be equal to this challenge as long as it combines itself to self-satisfied contemplation. Now, that's Adorno in a, an often quoted passage, or which part of that passage is quoted a lot, from 
Cultural Criticism and Society from 1949. And I quote that because as I sat down to write, I made the mistake of checking the latest news and my Instagram feed. And after reading that the death toll in Gaza had passed 10,000 on a tally that had been morbidly questioned by President Joe Biden, I saw a video from a Palestinian journalist. A child trembles uncontrollably after surviving Israel's aerial massacres of the Gaza Strip. The image of the child underlines the impossibility of attempting to recoup artistic and political subjectivity in the face of overwhelming social, existential, and cultural phenomena. If writing poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric, what is it to write during Israel's mass reenactment of a Warsaw ghetto clearing? How does absolute reification, in the Marxist sense meaning making concrete social relations seem abstract and objectifying humans, play out in the cultural overgrowth of digital content. My Instagram feed is full of banalities, but also art, communism, capitalist deprivation, and sometimes resistance, but it also conceals by volume and algorithmic censorship the never again happening right now. I was driven to tears by the image of the shaking child, but it was an individuated response to what should be a collective failure and sorrow. And this is not to be moralistic. What should our feeds be? Should there be feeds? How does one go to work, alienated and exploited, and fully take in the official barbarisms of an attenuated neoliberal capitalism? How does one navigate as an individual homophobia, racism, sexism, xenophobia, and transphobia, and build an expansive solidarity? Exhausted workers taking refuge in by the asshole posts and cat memes are entirely understandable. The mass Palestinian solidarity protests and resistance around the world are, of course, a central part of the answer to apocalyptic drift lit by digital spectacle. The attempt to make Palestinian solidarity taboo in the U.S. or illegal in Europe is part and parcel of an authoritarian and increasingly fascist shift in mainstream politics. Resistance for Palestine is, in this way, resistance for the entirety of the exploited and oppressed. This is the classical Marxist understanding of class-conscious solidarity and internationalism. However, in our official culture, including its social media and streaming, doom long ago became idle chatter, or doom scrolling. Various apocalypses and dystopias have become cliched entertainment, as if to make redundant Walter Benjamin's note about an alienated humanity experiencing its own destruction as an ascetic pleasure of the first order. The material base and the cultural superstructure, to borrow some terms Marxists have used, have become in tandem too much, both in terms of art and politics. The masses, or certain layers, resist and sometimes explode around Palestine, Black Lives Matter, but we continue to fail in cohering or imagining a counter-totality to Adorno's total that society has become, or an alternative to what Mark Fisher called, with different emphases and at a different historical conjuncture, capitalist realism, the sense that nothing that is an alternative to capital can be imagined. What is called for is a democratic, collective, and totalizing counter-imagination, a poetry of reconstituting, but not in a reductive way, a political and artistic subject. There is a crisis of Marxist subjectivity. There's a proliferation of intensive existential material crises, climate change, the relative decline of Western imperialism expressed in U.S. proxy wars in Ukraine and Palestine, economic crises and immiseration, the growth of fascism in the far right. And these crises seem to dwarf the responsive capabilities of the existing left, 
let alone the capabilities of specific individuals. This is accompanied by a seemingly uncontrolled overgrowth of what some Marxists call the cultural superstructure, an emphasis on the discursiveness and the individual performances of digital social media. This has produced a crisis of imagination. The digital culture not only shifts the forms of specific artworks and political gestures, it also is structurally biased toward a kind of philosophic idealism, tending to separate cultural and political gestures from their organic constituencies and authenticities. What is specifically said, while still important, has become less determinate over time than the fact that something is being said. To recoin Marx's content, it is Moses and the prophets. The discrete forms of culture have come to mimic the neoliberal commodity and financial form. The memeing of culture and its reconstitution by artificial intelligence ape the digitized production and financial networks of contemporary capitalism. In this way, the digital and AI-generated images are not unlike the collateralized debt obligations and similar financial instruments that enabled the global financial crisis in 2008. CDOs, comprising hundreds and thousands of real-life mortgages, were compiled largely by computer algorithms and programs. They became so complex that even their Wall Street creators had little idea what was in them. Like their financial counterparts, digital images are placed into a seemingly unknowable montage, what we call the Internet, and then remixed into new discrete Frankenstein images by artificial intelligence, like a CDO built of other CDOs, which of course is something that actually happened in the lead-up to the financial crisis in 2008. Like their financial counterparts, this digital montage has a meaning that an aggregation that is in the end mostly shaped by the needs of capital. These political and cultural transparent gestures, to borrow from the, the poet Rodney Jones, only seem to float separate from the material and political crises that proliferate in everyday life. A movie about atomic weapons is fused with a two-hour feminist, in scare quotes, toy advertisement creating the Barbieheimer memes. Barmyheimer floats, however, above a U.S. proxy war with Russia and Ukraine, a world about to accelerate the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, a world in which abortion rights have been suspended for millions, a world in which European and American leftists defend the use of depleted uranium munitions against Russian imperialism in Ukraine. I'm referring here, of course, to the Barbieheimer memes, rather than the discrete meaning of the films Oppenheimer and Barbie, and it's not that those meanings of the films are unimportant, a biographical film about a problematic scientist and a mainstream feminist appropriation of the Barbie toy, albeit under the aegis of the corporation that owns it, is to compare and contrast those discrete meanings with the related but also different participatory capitalist montage created in what I'm going to call a digital total work of art on social media. While this clearly has a marketing benefit for the movie studios, the meme was overdetermined by several cultural and structural factors and heavily conditioned by capitalist ideology. How do we read in retrospect the mimetic fusion of feminist Barbie and scientific mass murder in light of the diverse, quote-unquote, Biden administration's support for racial genocide? Karine Jean-Pierre is the first openly gay person and first black woman to serve as presidential press secretary. On October 30th, she compared... Palestinian solidarity protesters, many of whom are people of color and many of whom are Jewish, to white supremacists. 
Is this at one level another symbolic fusion of feminist self-actualization and mass murder? Semiotic reparations from the neoliberal center appear in real time alongside new historic crimes. Actual material reparations are, from the political center, of course, out of the question. Marxist subjects, from the classical Marxist perspective, the class-conscious workers and their intellectual allies seeking to organize the remainder of the exploited working class and oppressed, find themselves in a bind. As Jody Dean observes, mass democratic emancipatory politics necessitates mass communication. However, the very structure of what Dean calls communicative capitalism contradicts these goals. Conditioned by communicative capitalism and its neoliberal individuation, the contemporary left is trained in theory without practice, political declarations without organizing, and vice versa, in a meme culture semi-separate from the actuality and authenticity of in-real-life IRL organizing. Sectarians often try to brand themselves, their unique theoretical contributions against the rest of the left, and reformists often appeal to an imaginary common denominator, a tacit agreement with a capitalist normativity, which often means sacrificing the oppressed, trans persons, victims of racism and imperialism, women, and so on, and at the root of this problem is the enormity of the crisis facing the Marxist subject. The crises collapse time. Everything is happening everywhere all at once, but the exploited and oppressed subject is still constrained by geography and time. And that's our episode for November. Thanks for listening. Solidarity. Struggle just to stay alive